Welcome to our What Really Happened reaction episodes. What Really Happened is produced by Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Danny Garcia, Brian Gewertz, Seven Bucks Productions, and Cadence 13. To become a contributor to the show, just go to jenkspod.com slash contributors, or you can always leave me a message at 347-674-6980, or I'm at Andrew Jenks on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. People who are loud get our attention. At least they've gotten my attention for this podcast. There's the Balloon Boy incident. It's filled with helium, and it operates off of a million volts. Chris Christie. You want to hear the answer or no? Do you want to hear the answer or don't you? Kanye West. I'm standing up and I'm telling you I am Warhol. I am Shakespeare. But I was reminded in all sorts of ways throughout this season that silence is golden. Why? As you may remember, for our episode, Anatomy of a Box Office Flop, I interviewed Andrew Stanton at Pixar Studios outside of Oakland, California. Andrew Stanton has won two Academy Awards for Finding Nemo and WALL-E. In addition to the film I spoke with him about, the box office flop, John Carter. Finding Nemo and WALL-E are both Pixar films, the animation studio that grew into what it is today when Steve Jobs took over the company. Stanton, who directed films at Pixar while Jobs was still alive, had the chance to get to know him. And he said there was a simple life lesson he learned from Jobs that he'd never forget. One was working with Steve Jobs all the time and being in all these meetings. And one of the things, if, if he was told something or, or given something to chew on, if he didn't have an answer for it right away, if he was asked something, he had no problem just sitting there forever until he did. Huh. And it was, it's a very strange thing to experience, like just letting a whole room sit there a minute's a very long time, if that's the case, yeah. um, until he had something worth saying back and he got his thoughts in order. And the confidence in that, in just to say, that's who he was and that's what he needed to do uh, because he cared more about where the result was going to go than whether he was following protocol With this confidence in silence, you actually might save time. I even recently told Chris Corcoran, the CCO of Cadence 13, of a new strategy that, if I don't say so myself, I think should be implemented in meetings everywhere. At the end of a meeting, rather than everyone running off to the next meeting or whatever's on the schedule, why not end each meeting 10 minutes early? Build it into the one-hour meeting. And then for those final 10 minutes, everyone should sit, reflect on what came out of the meeting for them to actually execute or maybe write down a real to-do list or start doing what they were going to do later on, but likely will have forgotten some of the key details. I think great listeners are all around us. We likely just don't hear from them for, let's say, 90% of the time. But when we do that 10%, it's impactful. Or maybe we don't hear from them. We just witness the power of their actions. This season, we did an episode on musician Meek Mill. He grew up in Philly as one of the great rap battlers. In the episode, titled Meek Mill v. United States of America, I noticed the following. There is one video on YouTube in particular that caught my eye. And Meek looks much different than he does these days. A sturdy 6'2", usually sporting a clothes crop. In this video, he doesn't appear to be 6'2 quite yet, and he is skinny with cornrows. And his opponent, 
a bit smaller and likely a similar age, somewhere in their teens, is going at Meek. And it's mesmerizing to watch. Not the opponent, but Meek. Who knew someone just listening could be so amazing to watch? Meek appears bored, and it's hard not to stare at his eyes, which usually look off in the distance. His eyes don't just suggest, but make it clear that he is unimpressed. At a certain point, Meek tilts his head back as if to say his opponent doesn't just have bad rhymes, but bad breath. I thought to myself while writing this, all right, Jenks, you're dramatizing this. He's just, I mean, this is part of how a battle works. Let's relax with the hyperbolic wording. I've seen my fair share of rap battles before. You act like you don't care. And then when it's your turn, you rap back. But then it happens. Meek Mill, the moment after letting his opponent finish his last line, unleashes a profound energy. Meek must have been holding a hell of a lot of emotion in. And he brilliantly, at least in my opinion, goes off. He viciously and artistically eviscerates his opponent. Not even close. It's apples and oranges. A couple of weeks later, I did an episode on Angela Merkel. One person on Twitter reached out to me and said, I'm pretty sure you just compared Merkel and Meek Mill, and it kind of worked. This Twitter follower was pointing out what I had noticed and thought at first was a lofty comparison, that the Chancellor of Germany, Angela Merkel, and Meek Mill, one person born and raised in Soviet-controlled East Germany and the other raised in the streets of Philly, both had this trait of being able to listen. In the episode The Marvelous Mrs. Merkel, I said, Chancellor Angela Merkel reminds me of a young Meek Mill in a rap battle. Meek is quiet and subdued when another rapper goes at him. Meek stands and takes it. But when it's Meek's turn, you know he will unleash thunder. As biographer Stefan Cornelius said about Merkel, not Meek Mill, she is most dangerous when she is perfectly calm. When she is quiet, there is an outburst waiting just around the corner. Merkel never shouts. She just gets sarcastic And she then strikes. I've realized this year that the great strategists are incredibly diligent about not talking. When we did our episode, Kawhi Leonard, the really shy superstar, I was constantly reminded of Coach Greg Popovich's brilliance. Coach Popovich is considered one of the greatest, if not the greatest, NBA coach of all time. I discovered the following. The Washington Post said, Popovich is famously private. Conversational evasion, another favorite pastime. And nothing ends conversations or interviews faster than a pivot towards his personal life. For all the conversation starters and debate kindling, there is one topic he refuses to touch. That of Greg Charles Popovich. I'll walk the street someplace and I'll travel and I'll spend time with my family uh, in other places. Uh, can only grow so many tomatoes and read so many books. Silence can also make a point. Euripides, yeah, let's drop some Euripides wisdom, said, silence is true wisdom's best reply. In our episode about the 27 Club, I chronicled the famous musicians who all died at 27 years old. Among others, there's Joplin, Cobain, Morrison, Hendrix, Brian Jones, and Amy Winehouse. Some call it the curse of the 27 Club. Or some say that these musicians' genius was so through the roof, they were only given this limited amount of time on Earth. 
I spoke with biographers, music journalists, a neurologist, and then reached out to Asif Kapadia. The award-winning filmmaker directed Amy, the documentary which won an Academy Award about Amy Winehouse. From the episode... I tracked down Asif on Twitter, asked if he could send me his email. He was kind enough to respond, and I emailed him. I set up a time and called him for an interview. But Asif, in the kindest way possible, said he wouldn't take part. I'm not quoting him, but he was okay with me relaying his thoughts from the notes I took while we spoke. His reason for not wanting to be part of the podcast was simple and left me wondering why I was doing this episode at all. Asif has made it a rule of his not to talk about the quote-unquote 27 Club. He believes this concept has somehow made it seem like it's cool to be an artist and die at 27, when in reality, it's obviously horrific. Any reference to the club, even if well-intentioned, will further the romanticizing of this fake club that is simply put, tragic. I'm not kidding that when he told me this, I was kind of angry at myself. I felt terrible. If you do a simple Google search of the 27 Club, you'll get photos that don't show the reality of each musician's death at 27. Instead, you see cartoons or paintings of the six musicians hanging out in heaven, or talking over a card game, or seated as if at the Last Supper. You see photos of them like they're in the Brady Bunch, smiling, smoking, or playing music, being part of a club. In essence, a celebration exactly like how I started this episode. Chill music, the group hanging out, focused on artwork. I now really was part of the problem. I thought of forgetting about this episode and doing something else. This was perhaps one of the most powerful interviews I did this season, even though it wasn't recorded and I could only pass along to you what he told me. Sometimes, we get so uncomfortable with silence, we kind of freak out. There's caveats to the following, but think about what happened when Dave Chappelle needed a break from Comedy Central and went to South Africa. Dave has taken note of the wild claims about what he's doing in South Africa. So a Time Magazine reporter is asked to come and interview him to prove he's fine. To report back to the world, Dave Chappelle isn't in a mental institution or as other reports have claimed on drugs. So Time Johannesburg Bureau Chief Simon Robinson goes to meet with Dave at Ushaka Marine World, a water park on the beach in the South African port of Durban. And the writer doing his job is clearly paying attention to everything Dave does. Almost as if a psychiatrist observing Dave, the writer notes he's lucid and thoughtful and a couple of times asks me to give him some time to think about answers. He's also quite fastidious about keeping his new sneakers clean and stops at least twice to wipe smudges off their toes. The writer says, The first thing Chappelle wants is to dispel rumors, that he's got a drug problem, that he's checked into a mental institution in South Africa. He says he is staying with a friend. And so that's the first thing to cross out, this idea that Dave was in a mental institution. Something still talked about, and there's just no facts to back it up, as a possibility to explain why he went to South Africa. It shouldn't matter really if he was. There are some great mental institutions around the world. Somebody needs to get help. Although, as Dave would later joke, I'm just, I gotta get people thinking, all right, who goes from America to Africa for medical attention? In this case, silence didn't mean he lost his mind. 
He was instead, if anything, maybe rediscovering himself. Could anything be more human? But before I just stop talking altogether, which would, let's be honest, make my line of work difficult, there's one story this year that reminded me the downsides of not speaking up. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos all commission-free. While other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, Robinhood doesn't charge any commission fees so you can trade stocks and keep all of your profits. Plus, there's no account minimum deposit needed to get started so you can start investing at any level. The simple, intuitive design of Robinhood makes investing easy for newcomers and experts alike. View easy-to-understand charts and market data and place a trade in just four taps on your smartphone. You can also view stock collections such as 100 Most Popular. With Robinhood, you can learn how to invest in the market as you build your portfolio. Discover new stocks, track your favorite companies, and get custom notifications for price movements so you never miss the right moment to invest. Robinhood is giving listeners of What Really Happened a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help you build your portfolio. Sign up at really.robinhood.com. That's really.robinhood.com. General George Armstrong Custer was a Civil War hero, heroically fighting for the Union Army. His legacy is complicated. He'd go on to take part in the gold rush and is known to have slaughtered Native Americans in the process. In a stunning turn of events, after miraculously surviving close calls with death throughout the Civil War, General Custer died when fighting the Northern Cheyenne. The battle, at least in American history textbooks, has become known as Custer's Last Stand, although Native Americans and now myself call it the Battle of Little Bighorn. But who killed Custer has always remained a mystery. Although recently, new details have emerged. In one of my favorite episodes of the season, her brother's revenge, the death of General Custer, I chronicled Custer's life and death and the life of Buffalo Calf Road Woman, otherwise known as Brave Woman. She was part of the Northern Cheyenne tribe and fought for her people time and time again. As a reminder, here's a part of the story. In 2005, there was a gathering. Although not chronicled by the influential publications of our time, or really hardly any magazines or newspapers, this gathering, I think, changed history. It was July 22nd in Billings, Montana, and the sun was just beginning to set on another hot day. A group of Northern Cheyenne came together to tell a story. There were about 200 people in attendance. Frank Rowland, the night's MC, announced to the crowd, the chiefs said to keep a vow of silence for a hundred summers. 100 summers have now passed, and we're breaking our silence. In fact, seeing as it was 2005, more than 100 summers had passed. Although I can't be certain, it could be for different reasons. I've tried reaching out to the tribe in earnest and can only take some educated guesses. Perhaps it's because of Custer's incredible following, the tribe remained fearful of some sort of retribution. Eugene Little Coyote, present at the gathering, said... We've been told we were the villains of history. No more. It's important for our young Cheyenne to know the truth. We want to share our history now. For the first time in public, 
they shared details of the Battle of Little Bighorn. They showed imagery that presented different moments of the battle. Some of the images were printed over old newspapers, which they found inaccurate or misleading. A man named Clarence Spotted Wolf spoke of his brave great-great-grandfather who fought at the battle and lost his left eye. But the biggest revelation, which I think changes history, is when they revealed who it was that knocked George Armstrong Custer off of his horse. Their history indicated it was Buffalo Calf Road Woman, a.k.a. Brave Woman. She put Custer on the ground. After falling, Custer was then killed. If it were not for Brave Woman, Custer may have gone on to live. Roland said, We have a moral responsibility to tell the truth. This is the Cheyenne truth. Can you imagine? For 100 years, they didn't tell the world what really happened. In a world where we all want to get the information instantly, this is hard to believe in some respects. Why was this the case? The following is from an interview with Herman Viola, author of Little Bighorn Remembered, The Untold Indian Story of Custer's Last Stand. Indians are not, they're not arrogant. Indians are very private and they uh, are humble and they don't like to brag on themselves or others. And so that's why they just kind of keep a low profile, even in the U.S. military today. People don't realize this, but by ethnicity, Indians are the largest representative in our armed forces. And, but you hardly would know that because they don't brag about it. They don't talk about it. But they're a warrior people, and they, it means a lot to them to carry on these warrior traditions protecting the homeland. So oral histories are really important. There also remains the fear that should anyone speak negatively of Custer, there could be a vicious response. There has been in the past. This may be a, a question that, of course, a, a white guy would ask, but do you think that... Uh, that's also led to, to, I don't know how you would put this, difficulty for, for them to, uh, I don't know, get get more rights or more things that they deserve, because oh, absolutely, yeah, I mean, because they aren't that way, and so you know, you start, you have a few Indian lawyers out there now, but you know, they just really are humble people, not aggressive. They don't push their way into anything. And so that's why you don't see them much on the news. And I think it certainly helped with that personality why the government was able to take advantage of them. The interesting thing about history is you do need people who aren't silent. Leonardo da Vinci once said, nothing strengthens authority so much as silence. Sometimes letting silence go means somebody else will fill the void. Gustavo Rossetti, the CEO of Liberationist, wrote, Noise is not just a modern disease. It's been hurting our minds since the 19th century. Back then, a British nurse and social activist, Florence Nightingale, wrote that unnecessary noise is the cruelest absence of care that can be inflicted on sick or well. Nightingale argued that needless sounds could cause distress, sleep loss, and alarm for recovering patients. 
Permanent silence, he wrote, is not always good either. Animals must listen to survive. That's how we anticipate danger before it happens. In fact, five years ago, Duke University Medical Center led a study about how the brain is impacted by silence. It's hard for me to grasp the entire study, but it does find that two hours of silence creates new brain cells in the hippocampus region, the part of the brain responsible for understanding different situations, memory, learning, and instincts. The World Health Organization in a 2011 report, so a bit dated but nonetheless, called noise pollution a modern plague, concluding that there is an overwhelming evidence that exposure to environmental noise has adverse effects on the health of the population. So what are the solutions? Well, a part of me feels like this is a terrible idea. I'm suggesting we block out the sound and thus not listen to podcasts. To drive for a bit without listening to anything. Walk around without headphones for once. Maybe. That's why I'm a terrible businessman. Gustavo Rossetti, again the CEO of Liberationist, wrote, Noise keeps us busy. Social media notifications, Netflix binging, overthinking, constantly being surrounded by others, and overloading our calendars are just many of the infinite ways to avoid silence. We've turned noise into entertainment. It provides a temporary distraction, so you can't pay attention. Gordon Hempton believes that silence is an endangered species. He's an acoustic ecologist. Sounds like a fucking cool job. A collector of sound all over the world. For Hempton, real quietness is being present. Silence is not an absence of sound, but an absence of noise. The Earth is a, quote, solar-powered jukebox. He believes that retaking the world through its ears. Noise is contaminating our minds. How to recover the power of silence? Rossetti said, going for a walk outside in nature. Taking a deliberate break or practicing deep breathing exercises are easy ways to get you started. It takes time to enjoy the benefits of not being distracted by noise. All of this, I'm realizing, kind of explains our reaction episodes. Maybe I subconsciously had to write this episode because it's time for me to do less talking and a little bit more listening. What will these next 15 episodes be? It'll be a chance to reflect on season two and dig deeper. I'll speak with many of you who reached out on our contributor program at jenkspod.com slash contributors. I'll talk to many of you who reached out with corrections. It's also a chance for me to play some of our best interviews that were cut short because they didn't relate to the story I was telling. I want to end with an anecdote somebody recently told me. There's likely different variations of this. We're in Italy. In the countryside lives an old school, overweight, six foot three farmer. He's in his 60s. He loves to read. His mom said he's been a curious guy since a young age. The farmer's one of these guys who's only ever needed the basics in life. He wears overalls most days. He loves his wife and his kids more than anything. He loves his friends who he's known since he was a kid. He loves the brick home he built with his own hands and is proud of the three large barns, each with loads of hay. There's also a smaller barn he's been working on for one of his grandsons. The only item he's ever owned that really matters to him is his watch, something his grandmother gave him as a child. But for a few days now, he hasn't able to find the watch. He thought he just left it under his bed or in a cabinet, but after searching everywhere, he's realizing maybe, maybe it's gone for good. 
The only place left he thinks it may be is somewhere in one of those barns. Maybe the watch slipped off and just is lost in the hay. But it would take years to dig through all of that hay and find it. The farmer suddenly felt hopeful when one day, his grandson got a dozen of his friends to come to the farm in search. The farmer thought, wow, maybe we have a chance here. He told his grandson and friends that should they find it, he'd give them all an award. At this point, it wasn't just the watch he wanted, but also, being a curious guy, what happened to the watch? How did I lose it in the first place, he wondered. But despite the search and nearly two days of looking, they couldn't find it. By the end of the second day, nearly all of the kids gave up. As everyone left, including the grandson, another kid showed up. He asked the farmer, I heard about this search. Do you mind if I take a look? The farmer, a bit of an internal optimist, said, It's long gone, kid. But sure. The farmer told the kid where the barns were, and the kid began his own little search. He came back an hour later. Did you even look? The farmer asked. The kid nodded. He took something out of his pocket. It was the watch, covered in hay. It was in the barn, the kid simply said. The farmer was baffled. I had a dozen of your friends looking for this. How'd you find that? Those kids were organized. They looked everywhere, and the kid cut the farmer off. Sir, I went to that small barn. I sat down in the corner, and I tried to listen, sir. And when I did, I could hear the watch ticking. I went in that direction, and I found it. Did any of the other kids listen for the ticking? The farmer couldn't believe it. At that point, he remembered. He had put his watch aside when building that new barn. Huh, the old school farmer said. I suppose sometimes you have to remember. Silence is golden. That is, if you want to find out what really happened. So that is the end of today's episode. I thought it was a slightly cheesy ending at first, but now I'm kind of digging it. Vital point here, like I said, and I really mean it, these episodes are also about what you think. So call me and let me know. I have my man Lucas listen first so that I don't listen to anything that's a prank call, etc. And then I do listen to every single message. This podcast is only as good as your participation. Also, Gustavo Rossetti is who I quoted at length in this episode. You can go to his website to learn more about his work.